with a worship service. We thank you, Father, for the great salvation that we have in Christ, knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that if we confess our sins, we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. We pray, Father, that your Spirit would convict us of those sins that we might cherish in our heart so that we might be convicted and confess them and not allow any sin to hinder our prayer life and our fellowship with you. We come to you, Father, knowing that you are a God that is able to do great and mighty things, knowing that you control all things that take place, that nothing surprises you, and that you are working all things out according to your purpose. We pray, Father, that as your children, we would be submissive to your will. We pray that we would be on our knees praying so that we might know what your will is, that your spirit would give us insight into your word so that we might be obedient to all things that we know. We do pray, Father, for this nation. Our hearts are concerned pertaining to what has happened over the past week. We pray, Father, that you would guide us direct us, give us wisdom. We know, Father, that you judge nations by giving us leaders that are disobedient, leaders that would lead us down a path of judgment. So we pray, Father, that we would pray for our leaders and keep them from leading us astray. We pray, Father, that you would give us judges that would rule according to your law, not man-made law. And Father, that we would be returned to the God of our fathers as far as our legislation is concerned in these United States. We pray, Father, that you would raise up men who love God, men who are willing to serve you in leadership. Father, we even pray now for our children of this church that you would give their parents wisdom and knowledge to instruct them in the things of God. We pray that you would be pleased to raise up the next generation that would be a God-fearing generation, Father, that you would use them to turn this nation back to the God whom our forefathers loved. How we pray, Father, for an awakening to take place in our day and time. How we pray for a revival to take place in your church. Give us men, Father, who are willing to stand on the wall and be watchmen on the wall, to preach the truth unashamedly in their places of pastors. And Father, use them to call your people to repentance. Call us, Father, to make the hard decisions, to stand against sin. Father, we pray that you would give us boldness to speak out against the wickedness of our day. Do not allow us, Father, to become worldly, but Father, cause us to be separate from the world, but yet also light in the world, and help us to know the difference between the two. We pray, Father, for the salvation of sinners. Use us to speak the truth to those that we come in contact with. Give us wisdom to be able to share the truth. And Father, we pray that you would save our children at an early age. Protect them from the evil one. Protect them from this world. Give us wisdom in how to raise them in a godly home. Cause us to be godly in our example, Father. Cause us to walk in the path of righteousness. 
We pray that you would use this church and this community to be a lighthouse. We pray, Father, that you would bring people from this community to worship with us. And Father, we pray for those who in this community are unconverted that they may hear the gospel and come to Christ. Bless our time as we hear your word proclaimed tonight. Anoint your messenger and use him to speak your word in clarity and truth. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we might rightly apply your truth into our life. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. For those visiting, we welcome you and we're thankful for you. Uh, brothers and sisters, it's good always to be in the house of the Lord uh, with you and to worship our God together. Uh, for this week, things are going to be a little bit different for a few reasons. One, we're going to take a little break from our time in Ezekiel, not just for uh, just because this is an easier sermon to preach, but that would prepare us better for where we go in the book of Ezekiel. Um, but also, uh, I want to use my sermon from last week because it was shorter. And I thought, in fact, it would be beneficial, though, if we filled out some of those things that we were going to see last week and continue on. Uh, just know that I'm also experimenting on you just a little bit, so I do apologize. I am using you to figure out how I can better preach better, so if this just ends horribly, I apologize. Uh, but do give me some grace as I try to become at least a little bit better at this job. Um, last week I had prepared for a sermon as we focused our time on the Lord's Supper. Typically afternoon services here at Grace tend to be shorter, and so that sermon was prepared accordingly. However, we had our quarterly business meeting in lieu of our afternoon service. I debate on whether to preach this sermon or not, but I believe it is necessary as we approach the coming sections of the book of Ezekiel, which we have been in. You, you see... We just finished a major section of Ezekiel, and we are about to enter into a new section, chapter 8. Um, but I want to reflect on some of the things that we've seen thus far. The, the coming section of Ezekiel uh, that we're about to come into, particularly chapters 8 to 11, repeat a lot of the same themes that we've seen in prior weeks as well. So I have two reasons to preach this sermon tonight. I hope that our brief excursus here will aid us later in our study of Ezekiel overall, but I also want to give us a reprieve from similar material so we can better appreciate it as we go forward. So with this said, my aim tonight is to see two things. First, I want to see how God repeats patterns throughout history, that he repeats patterns throughout history to communicate his redemptive, pur his redemptive purpose, purposes, particularly looking at the pattern of exile. A lot of peas in there. Pa, pa, pa. And soon, uh, uh, and, and second, I, I want us to see the exile theme as a reference for the church to understand themselves as we wait for Christ during this time, during the present age that we live in as Christians. So these will be our two main points tonight, repetition and reference. But first, let's read our passage tonight, and it's a short one. Uh, it will be actually 1 Peter 1, just verses 1 to 2, and then we'll pray for God's blessing upon us. So 1 Peter chapter 1, the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles 
in the, disper- in the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we approach this text now, and we approach this time uh, by which we are refreshed by your word uh, in this season as our pastor has just prayed. Lord, we ask now that this, as we think upon these things, as we think upon your repeated patterns of history, uh, that we would find ourselves within that pattern and see where we are going. Help this to be an encouragement to our psalms and a balm to our wounds, but also more importantly, that you would be glorified in all the words spoken here tonight and all the words heard tonight, that by hearing these words, by remembering these truths, and by being comforted and reminded that we have a great goal to reach you in Christ Jesus in heaven. Lord, that, that is our purpose, to glorify you and long to be with you in consummation. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask that you please be with us now. Amen. So first, our first point, repetition. Let me begin with asking a question. In your regular Bible reading, have you ever noticed that God repeats a lot of the same kind of narratives or uses a lot of the same kind of themes? For example, I I can't help uh, when we go through our Meshame Bible plan throughout the year. Uh, The narrative of Israel crossing the Red Sea is repeated throughout, throughout the Old Testament in particular. Those similar themes of the divided waters, of going through, of, of, of God's redemption through judgment. All the various themes that we see within the Exodus story, in the Exodus narrative, rather. We see that this Red Sea narrative is repeated by Joshua when crossing into the land of Canaan. Right? Or we, we take the similarity of the kings of Israel being rebuked for their similar and repeating sins of not taking down the Asherah or not taking care of the idolatry within the land. We see a lot of the same stories, a lot of the same repetition over and over and over and over and over and over again. That is why sometimes reading our Bibles, especially our Old Testament, can be somewhat of a daunting, if not exhausting, task. It feels like we're reading the same thing over and over and over again. Kind of like what we've been doing with Ezekiel. It's been a whole lot of judgment up front. A few more examples. We see the theme of four nations coming in to destroy Israel for their disobedience of God. We see that all throughout the prophets and all throughout the kings and chronicles. So when we read these repeated patterns or themes, we are to be going, yeah, I remember this. I I, I remember reading this. This is familiar. But it should also be leading us to a very important question, brothers. How are these repeated themes, these repeated patterns, these repeated narratives, these repeated stories, how are they significant to my life in Christ? You see, brothers, God, God himself, our God, works, works, worked and continues to work in real life history in recognizable and repeated patterns. And this history that God is providentially weaving together, this history of his is recorded and expounded in the Bible for us. And this is a very important point to catch, particularly as we understand our Old Testament. God uses repeated and recognizable patterns and themes to help the New Testament church, not just the early church, 
but us, the New Testament church ourselves, us Grace Baptists. He uses these repeated themes. God, our, uh, our God himself uses the themes of history as it's recorded in Scripture to help us know how to understand ourselves and God's continued work of redemption. You see, God worked redemption there. He worked with patterns in history. Those were recorded for us now, and it helps us understand where we are in God's larger story. What I'm describing is what, become, what has become known as biblical theology. By tracing the major themes and motifs of the Bible, we are describing the theology of God's redemptive purposes in Christ in history. There are many instances of the exile theme, which we'll be looking at tonight. But I just want to look at, at least at some of the major occurrences, not every single one, because this would take, that would take many, many weeks. So first, the theme of exile is found first and foremost at the fall of man. After Adam and Eve's rebellion, we read in Genesis 3, verse 22, these words. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, after Adam had taken the, uh, the fruits. Now, let, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore... The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So he was taken away from the presence of the Lord. He was taken from that garden. He, God, drove out the man. And at, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So in this text, man, Adam, was driven from the benevolent presence of our God. Adam's union with God was cut off due to his sin. Quite literally, Adam and Eve were removed from his presence, from the garden. In fact, God is the main actor in the punishment. God sent Adam, right? He sent Adam from the garden. God drove out the man. God placed cherubim to bar Adam from coming back before his presence. This punishment of exile was severe, yes. Because Adam's sin was severe itself. It was an offense before God. And because of this sin, it separated him with his God. It separated and severed that union that he was created for. But we must catch something very important here as well. Before God sent him out of his presence, even after he had eaten the fruit, he promised in Genesis 3.15 a descendant to redeem Adam from his sin. And God also provided an Adam a sign of his promise, that God provided garments before they were driven away. Remember, they were given garments. Uh, uh, God killed an animal, presumably, and gave the garments of, of animal skins to Adam and Eve. He provided for them. By God's mercy, God pr promised Adam the hope of restoration back into his presence through a Redeemer. So at the outset, we should understand this. To be exiled is to be punished. Yes, exile is severe punishment. But with our God, there is always the hope of restoration. Moving ahead to Genesis 12, Abram, a pagan living in the land of the Ur of Chaldeans, which, by the way, is Babylonian territory. Abram was called by God to leave his country and to come to the land that God had chosen. Go from your country country, and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is God speaking. As we know, Abram is given the blessing to be the patriarch of the nation of Israel. 
So by Genesis 13, Abram has settled in the land of Canaan. And the Lord will eventually provide him sons and will confirm his covenant with them as well. Though Abram was in the land of God's own choosing, there were still many enemies within the land surrounding Abraham's tribe. These Canaanites, these enemies of God, we should say, were enemies of God and of Abraham. Though he promised Abraham and his sons the land, God was going to use Abraham's descendants to destroy the Canaanites in the land, particularly called the Amorites. In Genesis 15, 13, God promises this in his covenant to Abraham. Know for certain that your offspring, and he's speaking to, uh, uh, to Abraham, many years before what is about to take place. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go back to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good age. And they, his descendants, Abraham's descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there's this idea of filling up the measure of punishment so that God can pour out his wrath upon them so that the people of God could come into the land and prosper. In God's purposes, he chose to send the descendants of Abraham, Israel, the nation of Israel, into Egypt for 400 years so that they might sack the Egyptians of their possessions and come back to destroy the enemies of God when God would send them back to the land, to the land of Canaan, the promised land. So this time around, we can see the themes of exile take on a clear dynamic. Instead of being only a hope of restoration, the exile was a hope of future conquest. The exile was also a hope of future conquest in light of the enemies that now reside in the land. With Adam, exile was punishment with a hope of restoration. But with Israel, the exile was a time of affliction with a hope of conquering. Fast forward to the conquest of Joshua, the judges, and King David. We see Israel take the land and drive out the nations from that land. With the four nations judged by the exiles and the captives coming back into the land, by the slaves coming back into the land of Canaan, Israel receives the land promised by God and are safe and secure, especially during the height of the Solomon's reign. More importantly, Israel is then able to build the temple of God so that God may dwell with them and know the fuller reality of God's restoration, to know the fuller reality of their restoration to God's benevolent presence. After establishing the temple in Jerusalem, the glory of God filled the temple. God's presence resided among the people of God, as we see in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1. As we saw earlier in our study of Ezekiel, in our Sunday school in Leviticus, The temple at at Jerusalem was patterned after the imagery of the Garden of Eden with references to menorah, the instruments with garden foliage, and the cherubim interwoven into the fabric. The tabernacle resembled God's presence in the garden. We are supposed to be seeing the temple is a miniature garden. The temple was the garden, but for the particular people of the land of Israel, for the Israelites. Through the temple, Israel could enjoy God's presence again, at least in part, though it was limited in comparison to Adam at Eden. However, through obedience to God's covenant, 
uh, rather, I should say, through obedience to God's covenant, Israel acted almost as a second Adam figure. He was a, they acted as a second Adam while in the land. They were in the garden, right? Israel was in the garden at the temple, right? As long as they were faithful to God's covenant, as Adam should have done, Israel was blessed by God, and his presence uh, was the means by which they were blessed. They were blessed by having God as their God. But as we've seen thus far in our study of Ezekiel, brothers and sisters, we know that this blessed presence does not last. The people of God were not faithful to their God and to his covenant. And they were far from being blessed. The Israelites, in their idolatry and sin, God has promised to bring utter destruction upon them. They were utterly cursed because of their sin and idolatry. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 27, we, we read how the nations and future generations would describe Israel under God's judgment. This is Moses speaking. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against this land, bringing upon it the curses, all the curses written in this book. And Yahweh uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath. And what did Yahweh do? And he cast them into another land. He exiled them as they are this day. The wrath of God was expressed by him casting Israel into foreign nations. That is through exile. Brothers, what I want us to have, this vision in our heads, just as, just as Adam sinned and was exiled from God's presence, Israel would repeat this same pattern. Israel would follow Adam. They would break God's covenant and face the punishment for their sin. Exile from his presence, either eternally through death, pestilence, and plague as we've seen throughout the book of Ezekiel. Or the people will be exiled into a foreign land, driven off in, from his presence. This curse of exile was what God promised in his covenant with Israel for their sin. He was clear, just as he was clear with Adam. He said to Adam, if you sin, you shall surely die. And it's the same case for Israel here. If they sin, if they committed adultery, if they continued on in their rebellion, they will die by being removed from the presence of God. But like he did in the garden with Adam, God promised restoration despite this punishment for sin. In just a few verses from what we read in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy verses, uh, chapter 30, verses 1 to 3, promises that God would restore Israel back to fellowship with him. Moses writes this, Then the Lord, Yahweh your God, will restore your fortunes and have mercy upon you, and he will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Again, Israel is repeating the pattern of Adam's fall, but also the hope of restoration. And it's in this repetition that we are teasing out now in the book of Ezekiel. We are seeing now, even in the midst of great judgment and calamity, God still promises a hope of restoration. Though it has only been a silver lining so far, we will see it come to fruition in all its beauty and grandeur and glory in a few short weeks, or maybe a few longer. Again, brother, brothers, God promised even in the midst of destruction, that he would leave some alive so that they might return back in humility 
from their sin, such as we see in Ezekiel 6, or saw in Ezekiel 6. For these exiles in Ezekiel, they were the subject of God's exile of punishment. But those kept alive, those chosen by God to keep their lives, would see this time of exile as a time of repentance. And ultimately, as time came forward, as God promised, a time and a hope of restoration. So moving again on, in the era of Ezra and Nehemiah, the exiles are restored back to Judah, and they are able to rebuild the temple again. But as any reader of the Old Testament knows, especially of the prophets, this return to the land was not met with the same expectations promised by the prophets. For example, in Ezekiel's later chapters, the return and restoration of the exiles would be met with a new covenant, cosmic renewal, and freedom from their captors and the enemies of God, such as Babylon in Ezekiel's case. But the second temple period is met only with a renewal of the formal covenant. And it's only met with a renewal of a portion of Judah. And it is only met with a weak, worthless, and still stumbling people as we see in later portions of Ezra and Nehemiah. And throughout this second temple period, Judah was constantly surrounded by foreign invaders, and the land of Israel belonged to various nations throughout uh, the known territory around Israel. We could say, just to summarize this expectation the second temple period, that we could say that God's promises of restoration from exile were fulfilled in part, but they were not yet filled in full. The full expectation of the exiles had not yet been made. As time goes on, the exiles and their descendants become impatient. And they thought that the fulfillment of this expectation would come by their hands. You see, they were restored to the land, but that land was not really theirs. The exiles returning to the land would hope for restoration of conquering the enemies of God as we see pattern in Israel's uh, coming into the land of Canaan through the conquest of Joshua and later kings. These exiles returning to land would hope for the restoration of conquering the enemies of God as patterned by Israel conquering the land of Canaan when they returned from Egypt. But by the time of Christ's incarnation, Rome was the major superpower that controlled the land of Israel. We could say that the hope of restoration to the land had come, but the hope of conquering against God's enemies and foreign invaders as patterned by Abraham and early Israel was not yet fulfilled. It was not yet repeated. They believed this. These exiles, these foreigners among the land, they believed this in part because the prophets did foretold, uh, did foretell that Israel would live in security among the other nations. But again, it was cosmic renewal, not what they have here. As we'll see later in our study, just to give an example of this, Ezekiel prophesies concerning the Gog of the land of Magog. It's a mouthful, I know. Gog of the land of Magog in chapters 38 and 39. This Gog character, G-O-G, and his nation, Magog, acts as almost the representative or the prototype of God's enemies. And we'll get to that when we get to those chapters. But what we, what we should see here is that there's this nation. It's almost an Egyptian-like character. It's the personification uh, of the Canaanites. It's the personification of the enemies of God. 
In these, chapter, God, in these chapters, verses 38 and 39, God promises to destroy Gog and his nation by his own might. But this, this is important to note as we approach the New Testament, particularly. It wasn't in the power of the exiles returning to destroy God's enemies. It was not in their power. It's not by their hand. And this is very important, and we will see this. I wish that we already had. God was going to have for himself, the decisive victory against Gog and this nation. And he would be glorified by Israel for it. So just for a quick point of application, brothers, as we approach the New Testament and what it says about this repetition and this pattern for us as we approach our second point. The repeated patterns of God's history as recorded in Scripture are not merely there for amusement. When we read of these repetitions, these same stories over and over again, when we see those similar themes like an Adam in Israel, an Exodus and an exile, when we see these things come together, when we read these repetitions, we should not go away being entertained or go away from the text going, huh, that's neat. No. God gives us these narratives, brothers and sisters, and their repetitions for a reason. In 1 Corinthians 10, we see that God uses the Old Testament narratives to teach us, not to entertain us. Paul states this when speaking about Israel's disobedience in verse 11 of chapter 10. Now these things, talking about a historic narrative that took place, talking about an Old Testament narrative Now these things happened to them, Israel, the ancient Israelites, as what? An example. But they were written down for who? They were written down for our instruction. The New Testament saints. The new covenant body. On whom the end of the ages has come. The Old Testament is not something that we marvel at because it is hard to understand or strange or foreign to us. By no means. The Old Testament, its prophecies, its scriptures, its stories, its repetitions, its on and on and on and on again narratives. Brothers, that is our book. The Old Testament is our book. As Paul said, the various judgments that took place on Israel in actual time and space, in actual history, was for a purpose, brothers. And that was to teach us the new covenant community. God worked in actual history to repeat events so that we can learn from that recorded history. God worked. God made a narrative in actual history for us. God worked in history so that he could teach us in Christ Jesus. So brothers, my brief point of application here is this. Love your Old Testament. I know it's simple. I know it's silly. But if, you have any, if you're anything like me, and if you're anything like my wife, sorry, I'm throwing you underneath the bus here. When you go through those Old Testament narratives, especially as you get to Kings and Chronicles, you see these names over and over again. You see these same stories over and over again. That's for a purpose. It's to teach us. God worked that into history he made that happen through his providence, and he recorded that for us. 
Brothers, take up and read your Old Testaments. Too many Christians despise reading those stories in the Old Testament because it feels like the same five stories over and over and over again. And it's only if you're a biblical scholar if you manage to get something fresh, quote-unquote, out of the text. But that's the point. We don't need anything fresh from the text. God works sovereignly in history for the purposes to tell us the same old stories for a reason. God worked in history and recorded these stories in the Old Testament that we might know and be instructed how to live our lives in the present age right now, brothers. Or, as Paul says, for those on whom the end of the ages has come, us, believers. Brothers, these are our stories. Love them and learn from them. As you do, you will come to see the profound wisdom of God to give us these old stories These repeating stories, these long stories, for a reason. And that reason is so that we can understand how we might live and learn about Christ. With that said, brothers, I want us to transition to seeing ourselves in light of this exile theme. So we're moving on to our second main point for tonight, reference. What's the reference for us here? Brothers, God's acting in history to repeat patterns is not over when the New Testament canon was formed or completed. In fact, from the time of the early church to this present day, at this exact same moment that I am speaking these words, God has been using the repetition of history and this theme of exile as a reference, as a reference to teach His church who and what we are all about. Remember, theologically speaking, Exile is not merely about being outside of a chosen piece of physical land. The original exile of Adam and Eve was their exile from the presence of God. And that was what the land of Canaan was supposed to symbolize. The formal place of God's benevolent presence. And we know the focus is not on the blessing of the land as we said repeatedly throughout this study. It's not about the blessing that God gives, but it's about the God of blessing. That's the purpose of the land. That's the purpose of the temple. Through God's judgment against sin, he must exile man from his presence. He is too holy to behold that. However, the good news is that God has come down to take away the sting of exile for those united to Christ by faith. Using slightly different terms, the author of Hebrews makes the point for us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, Christ himself likewise, partook of the same things. That through death, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, brothers, Jesus became an exile. uh, He became an exile for exiles. He died for our death. But more importantly, he experienced the complete exile of God's benevolence. The complete exile, the, uh, the, the removal of God's benevolence from him as the son, uh, as, as the Messiah rather. And the weight of God's infinite wrath upon him, upon the cross. He took on the fullness of exile. He took on the curse. As Christ proclaims as crucifixion, in which we will get to shortly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
We put it metaphorically, brothers. If man was cast east from Eden, then Christ was flung to the east in the place of his exiles. He acted as the scapegoat who bore the sins of people on the day of Yom Kippur. At the cross, Jesus was led into the wilderness, away from God's benevolent presence, to die in the place of the sinner. This took place that we, the chosen exiles, banished from God's presence, might return back to fellowship with our God in perfect righteousness and peace that is found in Jesus Christ. As Paul states elsewhere, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Those words never get old, brothers. Never forget that. So that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers, this gospel of Jesus Christ is what took away the sting of death, the sting of exile. For we know that death is not eternal for those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. Ooh, I got emotional singing that hymn. I'm sorry. And now it's just coming out. Brothers, as those called by God to be united to Christ, as His chosen people from all eternity, we are still exiles. But we are exiles called back home. Just as Adam was given the promise of restoration, and Abraham the promise of a new home, We too are sojourners, knowing that our God has promised a way back home in Christ. In Jesus Christ, the full sting of exile, the punishment of sin is no more. But as exiles, we are still afflicted as those who are not in their homeland. And this is important, brothers. Though we do not feel the sting of the fullness of the exile, we are still in exile at this point in history. In this sense, we are not as exiles doomed for destruction, but as exiles called by our God to come back to Him. We are as those who are called as He does in Deuteronomy 30. Those who are afflicted and humble. Those who will humble themselves from their pride and come to Christ Jesus in true faith and humility before Him with the knowledge of their sins upon their hearts, knowing that He indeed is able to save. Lord, He... Brothers, he calls us. If indeed you have repented and believed in him. With this stated, brothers, I believe that we should see ourselves as the New Testament writers understood us. As the Israel of God wandering back from the promised land. That's who we are. This is how the New Testament authors envision us, the church. We are the new Israel. The new Israel of God wandering back to the promised land. As Paul states in Romans 9, 6, not all those who are Israel, that is physically Israel, belong to Israel, that is spiritual, heavenly, true Israel. And as our passage tonight speaks in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Peter refers to us, he refers to Christians as elect or chosen exiles. And how and why are we chosen, brothers? Brothers. We are chosen, if you would, please look at the text with me. 
and ponder at the text and love this text. Verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. We are chosen, brothers. We are elect. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The Father chose us. And what's the purpose? And how are we chosen? In the sanctification of the Spirit. And for what purpose? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. New covenant blessings. Brothers, we're chosen so that we might obey and glorify our God. This is the blessing, in, at least in part, of what we see in Ezekiel. Brothers, we're chosen so that we might obey and glorify our God together as the true Israel, the church. We're like those exiles under judgment or in judgment that come back for hope of restoration after their time of affliction. And itself was a repetition of an earlier Exodus story. And again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 had referenced Israel's judgment in the wilderness to parallel the experience and to call the church to be faithful. So then, brothers, what we are to see is that the church is a repetition of Israel. We're a repetition of Israel. And that's our reference. Wandering in the wilderness. And this theme is repeated by the later prophets such as Ezekiel. The New Testament writers saw the Christians are not those who have the kingdom of God in fullness yet. Yes, the kingdom of God is here. It's us. But it has not come in full consummation. It is not yet the new heavens and new earth that we see in Revelation 21 where His kingdom is glorious and all the enemies of God are gone and judged. No. Those are true realities. But we are, still tri- we are still striving to arrive there and being sanctified in that process of trying to get back home, waiting for Christ to come and get us. Christians are not even those who wage war, whether physically or culturally. Holy war was waged once Israel came into the land. It was not yet while they were exiles. And this is important. It was not while they were getting there as they were going along to the path of Canaan. Even for the nations that were defeated along the way uh, uh, by the Israelites, like Og and Sidon, they were not destroyed. And this is important. The enemies of God that, that were, came along the way, they were not destroyed so that Israel could set up residence there. They still had a place to go. Typically, Israel was commanded to loot the nations, but not to set up residence. If there's an appropriate parallel to this present day and this present age, brothers, the church is what is that wandering people who engage with the enemy by winning the spoils of war, but not setting up residence in their land. Rather than try to make the foreign land our home through cultural reformation or revolution, that's not what Israel did. That's not what God called them to. He called them to Canaan. He did not call us, brothers and sisters, to cultural reformation, to physical war or revolution. He called us heavenward. This is very important, brothers, as we engage in this coming season of the New Testament church here in America. Brothers, we are not like the zealots of Jesus' day who look to transform everything for their purposes, their perceived theological purposes. Brothers, we should not be in that business of trying to set up shop here for ourselves. 
because this is not our land, at least not yet. We, brothers, rather than try to take on the land of the four nations, we should be like those who are wandering from that, that, that God-forsaken land of exile into the God-beloved land that He has chosen for us. We should be in the business as we come along, as we go through the life, as we wander the wilderness together, knowing that we will get there one day. But as we go through, and as Og and Sinon, whatever those nations may be for us, for us, it's here in America. Brothers, we should be in the business of looting the nations of their people through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not through cultural reformation. Not through moral revolution but through the preaching of the word of Jesus Christ, who truly does conquer all those whom he calls. This is important, brothers, especially as we deal with the news surrounding the election, the pandemic, and just the general atmosphere of the cultural moment. We must remember that we are indeed exiles. Yes, the church is the current expression of the kingdom of God. And yes, the kingdom is growing rapidly through the conquering of the word of God. But the kingdom is not yet here in its consummation. That comes when the king comes. And so we should take heed to know how the New Testament Testament authors speak of the church during this present age. Yes, one day we will have an exile that will end in the conquering of the nations. And Jesus Christ will be the conqueror. And we ourselves too will conquer with him. But that is not present. That is not yet. It is to come. And brothers, just a few things to take away as we close tonight. We must catch the nuance that the New Testament authors make themselves when considering how we interact with the nations around us. We should, as Christian exiles, be making sure that our wait, as we wait that we shouldn't be caught up trying to destroy and upend our enemy because that's Christ's job. He'll do that for us. For us, brothers, let us be about looting the nations of their people through the preaching of the gospel. Let us loot the nations. Let us plunder the nations through the power of the gospel, not with sword, not with warfare, but with the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, may that be the means by which he gathers his people together among the nations. And brothers and sisters, may he be glorified in that preaching of the word. Brothers, I will end with this. Just a few thoughts as we end here. Brothers, we are called to loot the nations and not to set up residents like them. But far too often, as is the Christian tendency, as was Israel's, was to want and to favor the things of old. Israel longed for the cucumbers, we remember. They longed for the leeches and the onions. They missed their home in Egypt. Brothers, we have been called to a higher calling. And brothers, as we interact with those who we might disagree with, just again, a few practical implications as we deal, especially in this social media age of ours, be very careful about what you post. Be very careful with what you say. As we engage with civil discourse, especially with those that we disagree with, I think it would all behoove us 
to read what Peter says about our apologetic method, that it should all be done in gentleness and love and in patience as Christ has dealt with us. And most importantly, brothers, as we confront error, as we confront evil, and this is the day and age in which we live, as we confront evil as Christians, as Christian exiles, may we confront it with the truth and love. May we use the gospel in such a way that warms the heart of the nations around us who are burning right now. Our nation, our community, our physical, natural people, they're burning in sin. And they will burn in sin forever unless we come to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ in truth and love. So brothers, as we ponder these things, as we understand our work as Christian exiles, don't set up shop here. We have a place to go. But as we're going, make sure that you preach that gospel and may we loot the nations for the gospel, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the glory of Jesus Christ, and for the glory of our Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed good, that you have been exiled on behalf of exiles, that you took our place being that scapegoat who ran uh, in, in, into the wilderness where sin and death collide. But Lord, we thank you that in your purposes you have called us into uh, have this beautiful repetition of story that we might know how to live and appropriately see ourselves in the story of God. Help us to know what it means to be the true Israel God as those who are in Christ Jesus in this day and age. And Lord, may you be glorified as we loot the nations through the gospel. And may, as our pastor so wonderfully says, bring about reformation through uh, uh, reformation and revival through the preaching of the gospel. Lord, let that be our aim, our hope, and our goal as a church and in our personal lives. And Lord, may you receive all the glory for now and forever. Amen.